Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We have been moving through the reports of the various task forces that the WCA put together. As we envision the new Methodism, Stephanie, we've had a chance to read through a lot of these reports. What are you thinking so far? Because I had a chance to hear a lot of these in the council, but you're hearing them for the first time. What do you think? Right. I just have to say, I am so impressed with the work that has gone into this, the attention to detail, and just really the thoroughness that they have put into this. I I think it should give our listeners a lot of confidence in the folks that are helping to lead us in the right direction for the new denomination. I'm really impressed. The one we're looking at today, we're going to do a 30 to 45 minute podcast. We're not sure, but Eric Grayson is with us and his team wrote a book essentially on their <laughs> on their report. So why don't you introduce Eric and then we'll get started on this task force on marginalized peoples, which has a lot of elements to it. Yes, it really, really does. So I am so excited to introduce to everyone listening today, Eric Grayson. He's the pastor at Aldersgate United Methodist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. And just like Bob said, he's the leader of the WCA Task Force on Ministry with Marginalized Peoples. So uh, Eric, we're just really glad to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you guys for the invitation and the opportunity to share about a topic that is very important to me. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd love to hear just a little bit about your journey in into ministry and tell us why you're so passionate about this particular topic. Absolutely. So in seminary, I went to Duke Divinity School and I had it in my mind that I wanted to be in a, a very contemporary church with all of the, the bells and whistles. I, I love being able to connect with people in their everyday kind of lives. And the seminary I went to had a lot of great opportunities to, to experience churches in different settings. So I had that experience with the contemporary setting. The summer after, they sent me to a very different placement. They sent me to a church outside of Johannesburg, South Africa. Wow. I was excited wow. to experience a different context, yeah. but it was a very different context. Mm. I had no baseline to understand what I was going to experience when I arrived. I remember seeing a grown men asleep on the medians in the streets, in the towns in which I served, walking around town, seeing so many people who were unemployed, who were looking for food, who were malnourished, and you could physically see uh, the effects of malnourishment on their bodies, on their speech. It really left a mark on me. I remember speaking with the supervising director for that program, and he was a bit snarky. He was a retired minister, and he said, the difference between the church in America and the church in South Africa, he said, is we have theology. We believe that churches should actually be helping people in their neighborhoods and not uh, siphoning off their ministries to the government. We believe that every church should have soup kitchens and hospice houses. And the church I served in had those things, and it wasn't a large church. It, it, it served hungry people every day. It had a hospice house where people came to die. And that absolutely blew my mind. And so when I came back to, to Duke Divinity School, leaders from my conference asked me, where do you want to be appointed? I had no intention of asking for this, not sure where it came from, but I asked, I want to be in urban poverty. And that completely sent me on a different trajectory than the one I had thought I knew was right for me. And that's how I ended up in my first appointment in North Charleston in a community that is very transitional, a lot of unemployment, a lot of addiction, a lot of transience. And it's a great place for the church to be in ministry. 
powerful testimony to the downward mobility of the gospel, especially for a young pastor such as yourself. That speaks a lot, I think, to to the call and passion on your life and and your call to lead this team on marginalized peoples, which is a, a very broad ministry area, as as the report kind of outlines. So when you gathered your team together, first of all, how did you kind of gather the team and who was represented? And then what were some of the people groups you specifically addressed in this report? How do you define marginalized people? Absolutely. So the team that we put together uh, was put together with recommendations and advice from various leaders from the WCA. And we wanted to make sure we had individuals with a lot of different experience. We wanted elders, we wanted deacons, we wanted lay people. We wanted folks with, with different experience in different kinds of ministry with different demographics. So we began looking for folks who might have experience in poverty ministry or in disability ministry. Or, uh, we were looking at the different resumes and applications sent to us saying, okay, how can we represent a wide range of this sort of work. And not just in North America, we wanted representation from various different contexts because the church is going to be global. So that's important to us as well. When we started assembling the team, it took us a while to wrap our heads around, okay, how are we defining this topic? It's such a broad topic. It, it, there's a little bit of an irony in defining who is a marginalized people group, because if you have too concrete of a definition, then you accidentally marginalize other people from that definition. And so we really had to wrestle with that. What we came to was uh, we wanted to kind of create a, a little bit of a fluid category that would still be helpful. So we, we discussed having a marginalized people or people group being those who are not embraced or excluded uh, from, a from a dominant culture or community. Oftentimes they're set apart uh, by several key distinctions and negatively impacted for that. Whether it's a key distinction like a lack of finances or employment or housing, other times it might be belonging to a certain kind of group, a minority race, nationality, religion, or a linguistic group, or it could be related to ability or addiction. A lot of different distinctions can create a, a marginalized individual or people group. But we also wanted to be clear to say what might marginalize someone in one context may not marginalize them in a different setting. Someone in you know, the Philippines uh, may not be a marginalized person, but whatever trait or distinction they have might set them apart in the North American context. So again, we want to have enough fluidity there to talk about, okay, this needs to be flexible across the connection but still actually say something. What we want to challenge churches to think about is Jesus didn't actually give us a neat and tidy definition for a marginalized people group. He didn't simply say, hey, care just for these folks. He instead gave us a pattern for how to do it, how to, how to notice the widow grieving for her lost son, how to care for the leper. And so really what Jesus does is he gives us a pattern for how to live it out. And so we provided kind of that flexible definition, but then we want to move more into that pattern. So what are some of the, some of the uh, specific groups that you identified? Um, Cause I know there were several in the, in the report um, just as kind of a general definitions. I, I think it's helpful to, to think about the fact that marginalization is, is contextual, but we also recognize that there are sort of some universal categories that people might find themselves in that that are that are part of that so what 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 kinds of groups are you talking about so our listeners kind of get an idea of who you were addressing 
Absolutely. So after we kind of gave an introduction to the report and kind of gave some some guidelines to think generally about this topic, we wanted to give something that would be practical on uh, just just to start with a few different people groups that are oftentimes marginalized. And uh, we started with four. Uh, we started with addiction, material poverty, immigrants, refugees and displaced peoples and disability. Now, this is not to say that these are the only uh, marginalized people groups. There are so many other categories that we need to address and get into. This is just a start. We can see us in the future getting to other things like prison uh, ministries and other categories that are important. But just starting with these groups, we developed in our task force a series of subgroups. And each subgroup began recruiting individuals who were experienced in these particular areas and bringing together people who not only can think deeply and creatively, but also those with some hands-on personal experience. The reports that each subgroup developed are intended to, they're in our larger report, but they're also intended to be able to stand on their own. So I could take out a subgroup report on material poverty and give it to some lay leaders in a local church and say, use this as a way to start asking new questions. Each report each subgroup report gives some of those uh, specifics on, okay, how do we think about this particular demographic? What are some theological concerns or, or priorities related to ministry in this demographic? As well as what are some best practices currently in our Wesleyan connection? So we wanted to lift up examples that you could say, okay, we have a ministry in our church that's feeding the hungry. We want to go that next step. Who can we look at that's doing it in a way that empowers people, that is geared towards sustainability, and that is distinctly not just a social service, but an outworking of the church um, in word as well as in deed. So each of the subgroup reports is intended to function that way, uh, but then they're all woven together. I did leave one out a minute ago when I listed those four, and I intentionally left this one out. There's a fifth one uh, that we had written on gospel-centered community development. That report is, that's not necessarily a demographic or a subgroup that's marginalized, but rather that report is focused on how we can really focus on developing ministries in our community that again, aren't just about social services and, and providing a Band-Aid, but how they can be really grounded in the good news of Jesus Christ and develop rich, sustainable community practices where people are flourishing and thriving. Mm -hmm. So that's that fifth subgroup report that's in our document. That's part of what I love about all of the reports that I have looked at so far is that there really is an intentionality of, of making whatever topic we're looking at focused and centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and I love it that this group has done that as well. So I'm curious, it was nice of you to walk us through some of those um, different parts of the report. I'd love for our listeners to hear some of the recommendations that come out of your report. You know, as we look at all these different reports. We know that we're not just trying to recreate what we already have right now. We really are creating a new denomination, which means we are changing some things up. So what are your recommendations out of this report to help change the way that we're doing things right now with marginalized people? Absolutely. So starting out, we need to think about what are our objectives in doing this kind of work? What are we trying to achieve when we set up a soup kitchen or a warming shelter or a celebrate recovery group? And so we listed a number of goals that local churches could be working towards. Many of them overlap with each other. And so we want to highlight these because it's important that church leaders and volunteers understand why they do what they do. So the, the five that we lifted up were obedience to the Lord, alleviating human suffering, 
contributing to human flourishing, creating community partnerships, and conversion and discipleship. Those five are some of the objectives of the work that we're doing with ministry to marginalized people. So we want to help churches to, to think more deeply, not just about, hey, this is the schedule we've got. We have the, this ministry tomorrow. We have to make sure we have all the supplies together, but actually remind ourselves there's something deeper taking place. So that's one of the goals that we're, we're starting out to begin with. But then you ask, what are some of the recommendations, uh, other concrete recommendations for the new denomination? Uh, we have a couple of them. First, we want to see revised reporting criteria take place in our new denomination. Uh, as a pastor, I always chuckle every year when it becomes charge conference season or table season, because that, um, that's always a time of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, because you have to find all these numbers and you're not quite sure where they came from and you're not quite sure that they're ever going to see the light of day. I think they go into like reporting purgatory. I'm not really sure where they end up. Because yeah, I we don't, we don't technically believe in purgatory, but I do think that's where they go. <laughs> It there's is. a there's a great <laughs> circular file in the sky that uh, they they find themselves in. Yes, I think so. Yeah, it, it's just this mystery to me. There's this abyss black hole for for reporting on some of our outreach ministries uh, at, in our current denomination. And so, what we want to envision is reports that actually equip and empower the local congregation. So when I'm sitting with my congregation and my leaders in charge conference, when we get to those parts in the report where people are actually on the edge of their seat wanting to know, okay, what's this report going to say about us? And so we wanted to recommend that the new denomination flip the way the reporting works rather than just creating numbers that will go sit in a, an office somewhere. We want to encourage the new denomination to have a reporting process that every five years, every local church is going to conduct a community survey to where they're going to have key leaders in the church not ask themselves, hey, how great are we at what we do? Mm -hmm. but rather go into the community and say, hey, what do you know about this congregation? What are they known for? Or maybe ask the question, what would be lost if such and such church ceased to exist? What would be missing from the community? To begin asking questions of folks, whether it's the park or at grocery stores or other places, what do you think are some of the most important problems in our neighborhood that need to be solved? What are people hurting with? Or even just asking the question, what would you like to see the church do? How can the church help alleviate hardship in our community? And so we've prepared actually an appendix that guides churches through some very concrete and helpful ways that they can think about this community survey. We want that to be reported back to the local church because we want to be able to almost hold a mirror up to ourselves and say, okay, are we making an impact? To whom are we making an impact? Uh, really kind of a time to, to reflect upon that. And we're hoping that it will be um, at least instructive and insightful. Good news, bad news, any of it is helpful if it helps us be more faithful to Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the key recommendations we're making across the board for the new denomination. Second, we want to recommend that every local church have a practice of regular engagement with study material related to missional ministry to marginalized peoples. And so some of the specific things we're recommending is say, maybe once a year, have a sermon or sermon series on a particular topic. Maybe this year we're going to focus on the topic of prison ministries. Next year, it might be on addiction. Um, so, so every year the church can know, hey, we're going to learn in depth about something that we need to be engaged in for mission 
congregational ministry. Uh, so we want to have that at the local church level, regular engagement with study material. That could be a sermon series. It could be a Bible study. It could be a small group, but some way to help people go a little deeper. And the final recommendation that we're making across the board is we want to see whatever commission is developed for the new church related to uh, local missions and ministry, we want to see, likewise, an annual focus on a different ministry area. So that as a denomination, we can say, hey, this is the year that we're going to dive deep on this topic, but also produce a few other resources for the local church, maybe teaching materials or lift up examples of effective ministries within our connection, share testimonials about how God's grace has moved among us. And we think another thing that in thinking about that commission level work, it might be particularly helpful for the new church to establish uh, teaching congregations throughout the connection. So if there are churches in particular regions that are especially gifted at missional ministry, the margins, establish them as a teaching church and encourage churches in that region to say, hey, go to this church. They Part of their ministry is to teach other churches how to do this kind of work. Um, oftentimes in our current setup, in our current denomination, we have uh, conferences or we have a few experts located all in one place. And we say, okay, if you want to learn how to do this, you have to get to them or get to that location. But if we could really kind of lower that down from the top, make it a little closer to home, there'll be benefits in doing that. Because then what you can begin recognizing is that, hey, in, in a Southeastern context, this is what this church does which might be very different than in the New England context or in other places because the cultures are different and the needs are different, but that way you can make it accessible too. You can build relationships and network between your congregation and that teaching church. Those are some of the uh, recommendations that I'm particularly excited about for the new church related to this topic. So it's very different than saying to your church, we're going to create a committee and put all that in their hands and say, go do that. I guess it doesn't preclude that, but it says the whole church is responsible for engaging in this in this ministry. So we're getting out of the compartmentalization idea and saying we're focusing our entire effort to reach particular people groups, particularly in our community, as we learn from them. Um, I, I can imagine... I know there are people in our community, our church kind of sits out on the edge of everything and it's hidden in a neighborhood and so forth. And so when I tell people I pastor, you know, this, this Methodist church, they said, there's a Methodist church up there. You know, that's so that we, we keep thinking, how do we, how do we expand people's knowledge? Because it's all not even also so much about physical location as it is about impact to be known as they're the church that does X, right? That kind of, that seems to me kind of like what you're, what you're talking about. Absolutely. It's uh, one quotation that I really like. I, I don't even know who says this, but every church should be a local mission outpost to the world. I love that idea. Every church should be a local mission outpost. Uh, in, in your zip code, in your neighborhood. It doesn't have to be confined to your neighborhood. It doesn't have to be confined to your zip code, but every church should be a mission outpost. Now, every congregation doesn't have to do everything. Um, we can't, you know, most churches aren't large enough to have ministries to every single demographic that's hurting, but to know this is where God has called us in this particular context, in this particular time. So then it does, like you said, Bob, it stretches beyond just the work of a committee, but it can be the work of the people, of the people of God saying, hey, we are serving 
in this way. And it might be that maybe it is addiction ministries and maybe you only have a select few in your church who are actually running groups, but you might have your women's group maybe is, is knitting together scarves. Uh, and maybe your men's group is intentionally distributing coats. Uh, maybe you, you have different ways that your church is coming together behind this to say, Hey, we are all behind this work and we find a way that we can contribute to it. I really like how you are helping to equip the churches in, in this whole idea of what you're talking about to say, we have to take a look at ourselves. We have to know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well. But it also, when you're talking about this community survey, helps you to know what really the need is in your community so that you're not just throwing out uh, help and it lands and it's not fruitful because there's no need there for that particular help. So I think it's really great that you're encouraging churches to do that community survey and that you're going to equip them to do it. It's a great thing. Yeah. And picking what you're good at and what, what is most relevant to you. Randy Jessen, who is one of my mentors, some people will know Randy who, who recently retired, but he's still serving a little church out on the plains here and in uh, Colorado in retirement, a church that, that he was actually converted in. And uh, it's in a tiny little place called Genoa, Colorado, uh, out there on the plains. And uh, Randy uh, wears a pin all the time. That's a starfish pin. And uh, people ask him about it. And he tells that story about, you know, a man walking along the beach, throwing starfish back into the ocean and people say, well, it doesn't really matter. You're never going to get all those starfish back into the ocean. But, but he says, well, but it matters to this one and to this one. And mm -hmm. so picking what you're good at as a congregation, th that, that requires some discernment and really understanding what your community need is at that point. Because a lot of times people, churches will run off and say, well, we have to do a ministry for X, but maybe the, the community doesn't need that so much. Um, Eric, as we think about this pandemic and what that has done to ministry in 2020 and here at the beginning of 2021, obviously it causes us to turn our attention in different places. When you think about that, what kind of priorities do you think churches could be working on right now? Because you don't have to wait for the new denomination to be doing this. Obviously, this is what we're to be about. What are some priorities you would recommend for churches to be thinking about as we emerge from this pandemic? I think that's such an interesting question because the landscape is shifting continually during this pandemic. Things are not the same as they were last year in March, and things are not the same as they were a month ago in our communities, in our cities and states. They're changing so rapidly. So I think that means that local churches really need to be thinking carefully about what are the needs today in our community? Um, wh wh what is the need right in front of us right now? And what are we able to do? Although the question of what we're able to do, it should always be a, a distant second because if God calls us to it, um, we'll find a way to, to make an impact to, to do that work. I, we're all in this conversation in different parts of the country with varying degrees of church openness at the moment. Um, I'm just curious, how open are the congregations where you guys are, where, where you're located right now? 
So we are we are very open, actually. In fact, we've been open since July uh, with not as many services as we used to have before. But uh, and then we're opening back up for Sunday school and nursery here in the next two weeks. So I would say Oklahoma is probably a little more open than most states. Yeah, we're we're just getting back to in-person worship here in Colorado. Our our bishop told us to hold off on that until the end of January through January. We were outside all summer, which is great here in Colorado. We worship outside in the hillside with Pikes Peak in the background. That was phenomenal. But uh, we're just now getting back to in-person worship and limited in-person worship. So fewer people, everybody masked. So it, it does vary widely from where people are. And um, I look at some others and go, well, I wish we could do that, but we, we can't do that yet. But hopefully we will be able to add more soon. The reason I asked the question is because um, it, in my experience, Stephanie is a lot like yours. We've been open since June and uh, we, we've split our service and had you know, different precautions in place. But the one thing I've noticed in doing this is it seems that you know, churches are splitting even into two, into two uh, groups, those who want to worship only online and those who are coming in person. But through the process in person, we've connected with a whole different set of people that I don't know where they came from. They just appeared um, in, in worship, but also in some of our outreach ministries. So the, the communities that we're connecting with are so different. Uh, different than they were a year ago, different than six months ago. And so I think our congregations really need to, we cannot go back to business as usual with our missional outreach or just with any of the, the life of the church. We're going to have to really sit down and pray and ask God, you know, who are you bringing to us and what needs are before us that we can meet? And it's going to be constantly changing. The church needs to be nimble during this time, which I wish there was an easy formula to say, okay, this is what we do when things open back up. But really, I think it's a posture that we need to adopt in terms of having that openness to say, you know, we don't know the landscape, but we do know the Lord who calls us into it. And so um, there are opportunities in this for sure. I think that um, people are hurting in ways they weren't before. The gospel is so needed. Um, will we be faithful enough to see it and connect it to people? Mm-hmm. Well, and as we we know, we're facing that particular challenge as, as churches open back up and the pandemic, Lord willingly, passes. But we also know that with the creation of a new denominations, we're, we're going to be facing uh, other challenges with that as well. What are the challenges that you see ahead uh, as we transition to a new denomination and that begins to take shape? Uh, how, how do you think churches need to be focused on marginalized people and respond even in the midst of that transition? So I see two challenges that I also think are opportunities through this kind of work. The two challenges that I see are one, we have a lot of churches that are not necessarily um, financially, they're not as healthy as they were prior to the pandemic and a, a changing landscape in the denomination will present questions related to health and vitality for congregations. I think that's challenge one. And challenge two is that um, in the midst of denominational changes, there will be questions about why should I be involved in a new denomination? Uh, questions about um, the trajectory and direction of a new church. I think those are two challenges that we will face, but I think that the work for missional ministry of the margins uh, as local churches embrace it can make a big difference. Um, first, uh, local churches that are in difficult places, I think they can experience uh, vibrancy and revitalization through reaching out to their neighbors. 
Um, I say this anecdotally, the church I serve was about to be put on a charge a decade ago. And my predecessor uh, was appointed here. Um, they, they, they sent a, a minister, a full-time minister at base pay. And the plan was, we'll send him for one year and show you that you can't be on your own as a church. And uh, if that didn't galvanize the church and the pastor, um, they were determined to say, no, we can do this. And he was determined to point them out to their, just the streets right around the church. They did an adopt a block kind of ministry and built relationships uh, with their community. And the church is not on a charge in many ways doing that work, they rediscovered Jesus um, and it revitalized this congregation in a powerful way. Um, the challenge with that, though, is it doesn't happen overnight. A revitalization through missional ministry takes time because you're recreating the culture in a church. Uh, one of the things I love to see in our congregation is I love to see our senior citizens who I've had people tell me in the past, said, they would say in the past, I'm too old to do this. I'm unable to do that. And then watch them over time start volunteering with a food bank or a shelter and realizing, actually, there's a lot that I can do. Most of our ministry to, to the poor is run by my retirees. Um, I, I call them our, our young retirees. They're vibrant. They're, they're making things happen for Jesus that, that younger folks in our church are not doing because they're working all day and raising families. But it, take, it takes time to shift that culture to where you recognize what you can do and what God is equipping you to do. I think that that's a challenge the new denomination faces with churches that might be struggling to understand their own identity and their own vibrancy. But there's a huge opportunity in that as well if we quit thinking about what we're unable to do and just focus on the small things we can do. The second challenge I mentioned is people will ask the question, why should I become involved in a theologically traditionalist denomination? The huge opportunity there for us is to point to this kind of work as we embrace this, this very nitty gritty, dirty, hands-on kind of ministry to hurting people. That is our witness to the world, to be able to say that, hey, you know, we're doing the work uh, that the gospel calls us to do. Um, the church I serve has a winter warming shelter, and um, uh, we welcome the homeless into our church on cold nights in the winter, which you're in Oklahoma and you're in Colorado. So winter by your standard and ours is very different. Um, so we have you know, like 16 cold nights out of the year, um, and we define cold as 35 degrees. You, you guys probably won't, you know, you, you'll laugh at us, but it, it, that's it's cold. It's 35 here. degrees in my studio here in my basement right now. <laughs> so. If you need shelter or a blanket, let me know. Uh, I'm right next to the furnace even, and it's still... <laughs> Yeah, you know, South Carolinians can't handle that. We curl up, we, 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 we hibernate, but, but that's one of the ministries that we do. And the, the interesting thing that's happened is I could never have bought a better PR campaign for the church. I could never get better advertising for the church than just opening the doors. And we, we do tell the community, we, we, we release a press release every time we're open. Um, but the, the amount of support that the community gives to the church, and I'm talking other denominations, I'm talking people who are not church affiliated, people who are not religious at all, they see what the church is doing and they, they, they volunteer, they send uh, checks, they send tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of bags of clothes and random things that some of it is useful, some of it we have to sort out and give, uh, you know, uh, formal suits to goodwill because we just can't give those out uh, as fast as we receive them. But the witness of the church just doing the work that no one else is doing, I think, is the most powerful witness that we can have, um, it, particularly to a world that is skeptical of religious claims.
Um, so I think those are two challenges we face. And I, I really do believe as we dig into this kind of work, we will see um, opportunities in those challenges. Reminds me of, of the general rules where Wesley says we do all the good we can to the bodies and souls of people that what you're talking about is not merely another social service agency, but rather one that is wrapped in, in the gospel and in the work of the kingdom. And so the people can see that shining, not just as a handout, but as a, an opportunity for them to see significant life change. I, I think that's a significant part of this. And I think it's a significant part of what it means to be part of a new traditional denomination. If we're really going to be traditional, going back to our model from Wesley, whose whose best-selling book was actually not a theology book, but rather a book on medicine uh, for giving home remedies to the poor. And if you wanted to find the apothecary, it was probably with the Methodist Society at that time. It's a very interesting book, by the way. Most of his cures have something to do with cold water or being electrified. Uh, if you bathe in cold water and take electric shock therapy every once in a while, you should be in great health, according to John Wesley. <laughs> We're not advocating for that, my friends. But <laughs> but what we are saying is that there, there is a real opportunity for us to engage in a new way um, not that the United Methodist Church has done a, a terrible job at this. There are a lot of great ministries that our denomination, current denomination, has done, and we don't want to run those down at all. But I think sometimes what's been missing has been the idea that real life change, real circumstance change, often comes from that transformation from within. That's one of the many things that I love about our Wesleyan heritage is how we define salvation. Um, it's holistic. It's 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 future and present. It's um, the whole person, uh, salvation from the things that still kill and destroy in this present life, and an eternal salvation. Um, and and we get to embody that in our churches in ways that connect with people um, who are skeptical of our our spiritual claims, but then they see that we live differently. Then they become more open to those spiritual claims. That is so true. And what a beautiful note to end on. Eric, I want to just say a word of thanks to you for not only being with us today, but for taking so much time to lead such an important task force as we find ourselves going into this new denomination. So thank you so much for being here and thanks for all your work. Thank you. Eric, if people want to get hold of you and learn more about the report or about uh, how they can be involved or how their church might begin to think about this, how do they reach you? Uh, I, my email address is available on our conference website. Uh, would welcome any conversation, uh, response from anybody. My email is ekgrayson at umcsc.org. And uh, like I said, I would love to, to chat with anybody. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. We also want to remind you that we love to hear your comments and questions through our email here at the podcast. The email is podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at WCA Pod. You can also learn a lot about what's going on with the Wesleyan Covenant Association on the WCA website, wesleyancovenant.org, including information about all the things you're hearing about through our podcast medium. So we're glad you've joined us. We'll be back here again very soon with another episode. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Stephanie. We'll see you here again next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.